Good evening, everyone. It's so nice to have you with us tonight. I'd like to give you a, a Hebrew message. Hag Pesach Sameach. Hag Pesach Sameach means may you have a joyous Passover. You see, right now the sun just went down and uh, Passover begins at sundown today. And uh, in Israel, as a matter of fact, many Jewish people are realizing that uh, their present Passover activities will more closely resemble uh, some of the activities of the very first Passover in Egypt. There's about three things that kind of give us that understanding. And the first thing is that Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu announced uh, here just uh, earlier that a total curfew uh, from a few hours before the Seder, or the Passover Seder, the Passover meal, uh, until the following morning. Uh, So everyone in Israel must be home on Seder night. And this is exactly how it was the night before the Lord God took them out of Egypt. So that's kind of... uh, Similar, isn't it, to the very first Passover? Secondly, there is a plague raging outside their homes, exactly as it was before the Lord took them out of Egypt. And then thirdly, this year, the Seder is the exact same day of the week that Jewish tradition teaches the original Seder was held. And obviously the same Hebrew date. So things to consider about this particular Passover this year. But uh, just one more thing to consider before we get into our study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. When you examine the name of the prime minister of Israel, Netanyahu, the name means God has given. His first name Benjamin means son of my right hand. What an interesting thing that God, the Father, has given us, the son of his right hand, the son who is sitting at the right hand of God right now. And he has given us the son of his right hand to be the Passover lamb. He was recognized by John the Baptist early on in the Gospel of John where John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who taketh away the sin of the world. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 said, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrifice for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then, of course, always remember this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. He gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, we praise the Lord and wish you 
all a very joyous Passover. Chag Pesach Sameach. Tonight we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So I'd like to have you turn there with me in your Bibles. In our initial study of 1 Thessalonians, we saw how this church was born by the Word of God being taught to them and the illumination of the Word of God to people's hearts by the Spirit of God. And as we enter into this second chapter, we will see how the church grew as the Apostle Paul ministered to them. And just think that if the Word of God is indeed food for us, then by consuming and eating and and, and taking into our lives the Word of God, all we can do then is grow. And the church in Thessalonica began to grow because of Paul's ministry to them. And and what is such a blessing, as we shall see, is how, how Paul loved them as a, as a mother. <laughs> we'll see that in the text tonight. How Paul loved them as a, a mother, looked out for them as a father, and he longed for them, and he cared for them as a brother in the Lord. The focus will be on leadership, in particular Paul's leadership, but as well Silas's and Timothy's leadership and lives being lived out in their walk, which could be seen by them all. We mentioned last time that Paul and Silas, when they arrived into into Thessalonica, that the church themselves, the the body there in, in, uh, in Thessalonica, saw Paul and Silas, and they saw the the wounds on them from the uh, way that they were treated in Philippi. We'll, We'll talk about that in just a moment. But their lives could be seen. But not only were the scars seen, but so was their life lived out. The world is is looking at us today. But as often as we can get out into the world, since we're mostly at home. But the world still needs to see Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we need to present the love of Christ and the grace of our Lord, and the mercies of God, and, 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 the, and the truth of God's word lived out in our lives. That is an aspect of leadership. Not just for leaders in the church per se, but for each and every one of us that loves the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So as this chapter opens, and Paul shows how, how his motives and his conduct were pure as he ministered to this young and vibrant church. Something the many charlatans and false prophets could never say, in spite of the fact that many of them falsely accused Paul of being like them. Well, we read there in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul saying, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. Our coming to you, our entrance into your lives, And into this church, it was not in vain. It was not worthless. It was not empty. But even after that, we had suffered before. Let me say that again. But even after that, we had suffered before. Speaking of, again, as he says, and we were were shamefully entreated, as as you know, at Philippi. When you think about what happened in Philippi, you, of course, have to go all the way back to... uh, 
Acts chapter 16. And there in Philippi, Paul and, and, uh, and Silas were, were, uh, were taken and arrested. All because Paul had uh, delivered a, a young damsel who was actually uh, possessed. And following around, Paul and Silas. And, and, and Paul prayed for her and, and delivered her from this, this demon. Or demons, as it were. In any event, she stopped doing what she was doing, and, and that got uh, her, her masters really upset because what she had been doing was bringing in money, bringing in revenue. So they took Paul and Silas, and they beat them, and then they imprisoned them. Of course, we know that in the prison in Philippi, that Paul and Silas, even though in the darkness of that prison and in the, in the, in the pain of, of their uh, suffering, began to worship the Lord, even at midnight, worshiping God. Yet they had suffered. So he mentions this, even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at, at Philippi. Shamefully entreated because they were Roman citizens. And that was discovered later. It says, nonetheless, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention, the word for contention is the word agon, from which we get the word agony. They, they really did suffer as they preached the gospel of the Lord. There was a contention. There was a fight. They agonized in that fight. All of this was seen by this church in Thessalonica. So if Paul, Silas, and Timothy teach us anything about ministry in general, and their ministry in particular, they teach us that they were good stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now a steward is one who is really a manager. To understand biblical stewardship, one need only remember that a steward owns nothing, but possesses and uses what belongs to their master. And that is why I say that a steward is, is, is one who manages what has been entrusted to him. So once again, to understand biblical stewardship, you have to understand that the steward does not own anything, but possesses and uses what belongs to their master. As the gospel was entrusted to Paul, so it is entrusted to us. Paul ministered this good news to young believers as a faithful steward, one who was willing to suffer boldly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the key to not coming to them in vain. That was the key to, for, for them to not come to this church in emptiness or with worthlessness. Their boldness was an example to this young church of having no fear of the world or those in the world who would oppress and punish unjust believers in Christ. That is the kind of boldness that we as believers in Jesus Christ need to have as we go out into this world as often as we're allowed or as often as we do, and wherever it is that we go, we may not have as much contact as we used to have with people, but today we still need to be the light of the glory of Christ in the, in the face of this world's uh, situation. We still need to be able to walk with our heads held high. Why? Because of the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. Why we need to keep looking up? Because in this time and season in which we're living in, the Lord could come at any moment and we need to be ready because his redemption draweth nigh. 
Well, it takes boldness to be that kind of a Christian in the situation that we're in. Paul goes on to say how the gospel was preached to this church, verses 3 through 6. Let's, let's turn there now. For our exhortation, the encouragement, the warning and encouragement that Paul was to give to them was not of deceit, he says. In other words, it was not fraudulent, nor of uncleanness. It was not impure, nor in guile, which means it was not crafty. There was no craftiness involved. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Again, those are words of a steward, of one who is a a loyal and faithful steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. So if God has given us the gospel, what are we doing with it? He says then, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth or testeth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Again, here was the faithful stewardship of the gospel. Paul was determined to give them no erroneous message. In other words, no message filled with error. Oh my goodness, you could hear all kinds of stuff being taught today on YouTube or any other platform. And and if you know the word of God and if you are, you know, you're really embedded in the word of God. I mean, you're going to be able to discern some of these things. And you have the spirit of God with you to give you discernment of spirits. There are messages out there even today that are, that are meant to destroy the believer. Sometimes meant to keep others who are non-believers from knowing the truth of the gospel, the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul was determined to give them no erroneous message, no message filled with error. Everything had to be pure. He didn't want to give them an impure message. And by no cunning or treacherous deceptive means, he didn't want to use any of that. What he gave them was the pure, unadulterated, inerrant word of God. And and, and he did so with only pure motives. This is how we check our hearts today. That we study to show ourselves approved of God. Workmen that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Why? Because we spend time in prayer, because we spend time in study, because we spend time to know and to understand what God's word is saying. We trust the Lord to give us the tools that we need for that. Sometimes the tool is, and the main tool, of course, is, is, is our Bibles. It's, it's God's word. And the challenge to us sometimes is just that we keep our focus on God's word and on nothing else. So pure motives. What are the motives of the believer that wants to see people come to know the Lord and to grow in grace and knowledge, to grow in the mercies of God, to grow in the love of God and to grow in the love of Christ? 
Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He said, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards, again, there's that word, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So anytime that we mention stewardship, it has to be a faithful stewardship. It can't be a stewardship that has uh, uh, inter- uh, ulterior motives or, or, or motives that only belong to the person who claims to be a steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every believer in Jesus Christ is called to be a good steward of the gospel and of the word of God. A good manager, a good person entrusted with the most precious thing that is, by the way, an eternal thing, which is the word of God. God's word will stand and last forever and forever. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, Paul tells Timothy, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Committed to my trust, Paul said. He saw that as God entrusting him with the message of the gospel. Later on, in the last chapter of First Timothy, uh, chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says to Timothy, Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of, of science or knowledge, as it were, falsely so-called. Keep that which is committed to thy trust. Paul gives the word of God to Timothy and says, Now you are entrusted with the gospel. Those of you who come in and, 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 and hear the word of God here in this particular congregation, you receive it, and if you receive it with the right heart and the, and the pure motives by which we are to, to, to know the Lord and to know his word, we're entrusted now to take that gospel and to, and, and to use it as unto the Lord and not to please man. Everything we want to do in our lives is, 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 is set to please God. That should be the the very motive of of every one of our hearts. Timothy, keep that which is committed. Guard that which is committed. Watch over that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings. Oh, there have been preachers down through the, you know, this last century uh, and going into this new century that have taken these liberties to, you know, to say profane and vain things from, the, from pulpits. And, and, and people just eat it up. People with itching ears, they, they, this is what they want to hear. I don't, I don't care what people want to hear. I care what God is hearing from us. I care what we tell people about Jesus. Because for them, it may be their eternal destiny that is going to be called into question. Which means their heart has to be brought to an understanding of the gospel. That they might come to life everlasting in Jesus Christ. This is the reason why later on in the second letter, Paul's last letter that he wrote at, to Timothy, but the last letter that he wrote, Second Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2, that Paul said, Thou therefore, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace, in the undeserved favor 
that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So when he had said to Timothy back in 1 Timothy 6 verse 20, keep that which is committed to thy trust, Paul taught Timothy the word of God. Now, as Paul is getting ready to enter into glory, he tells Timothy, that which you've heard from me, that which you have received and now have become a steward of, that same thing commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Do you know that that's how the word of God got to us? Faithful men taking the word of God and passing it on. It reached us centuries later. Centuries later. And here we are. I hope and pray that most of us, most of us, if not all of us, have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that we now have this same word committed, this same gospel committed to our trust, entrusted to our stewardship. The mark of a faithful steward is not only to suffer willingly and boldly for the gospel. A second mark is to live to please God and not men. That has to begin with our message. That has to begin with the message that we have. Consider verses 4 and 5 and verses 4, 5 and 6 of our text. Paul says we speak not as pleasing men. Paul says neither at any time use we flatter, used we flattering words. Paul said nor did did we see glory from men? We don't please men. Not at any time do we try to flatter people. Nor do we see glory. And it brings us to three things that we can learn from that particular passage. The first one is this. That ministry is to be according to God's divine plan. Ministry is to be according to God's divine plan, not ours. We're not here to please people. Oh, there have been many times, and I'm sure it's happened to you. You say the truth, and people say, I don't want to hear that. (laughs) Well, of course you don't. The flesh doesn't want to hear the things that would bring you to a, a changed life. The enemy has blinded people. Blinded people to the fact that, oh, listen, I have everything I want. I, I can live for today, yeah. Just like the man that said, you know, uh, you know uh, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you're going to die. Well, you can only go so far with the things that you have on this, on this earth. Ministry is to be according to God's divine plan. And in the flesh, people will not accept that. But that's okay. It still has to be according to God's divine plan. Secondly, ministry is never to be a pretext for greed. Which means ministry is never to be an excuse for greed. It is never to be a cause for greed. It is never to be a ploy for greed or a ruse for greed. 
It's never to be out there to flatter, to, you know, to fool people. God did not call us to fool anyone. None of us are being fooled into the kingdom. Ministry is never to be a pretext for greed. To do something so that I can get something back. That's not ministry. Thirdly, ministry is never to be ground for selfish demands as servants of Christ. It is never to be ground for selfish demands. As Paul said, nor do we see glory from men. That is a selfish demand. I don't want glory from men. I want all the glory to be given to Christ Jesus and to him alone. I want God to get all the glory. God to receive all the honor. The Lord to receive all the praise. The name of Christ to be exalted. The name of Christ to be lifted up. The name of Christ Jesus to be magnified above all things. Not mine. Not the name of this church. Not any movement. Him and Him alone is to receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Any aspect of ministry is never to be grounds for selfish demands as servants of Christ. Paul goes on in verses 7 and 8. And he says this, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls. Because you were dear unto us. You know, it would be nearly impossible to imagine or picture the Apostle Paul, who already had on him who already had on him the scars of persecution for the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, you know, for us to, uh, it would be impossible to imagine him as a mother. <laughs> but that's what he says of himself. A mother, but this, this is how he described himself and his companions to his young charges. But that, that was truly Paul's heart. It was his heart for, for young believers the fledgling ones who were just starting in their faith and in their walk. But he not only describes himself as a mother, but as a nursing mother. A nursing mother. The phrase, as a nurse cherisheth, literally means to nourish. All the apostles were quite aware of young believers' needs for proper spiritual nutrition. All of them were. Peter, for example... In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, craftiness, and hypocrisies, and envies, and all evil speakings, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word. Desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Desire the sincere milk. Of the word. Paul in Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 10 says. uh, Speaking of, of Jesus. Called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Of whom we have many things to say. And hard to be uttered. Seeing you are dull of hearing. So he's, he's making it clear to the, the, to the Hebrew uh, Christians. 
making it very clear that they, they were still dull of hearing. They were not sharp in their hearing of what, the, of, of what the gospel was and of what the word of God was saying. And he goes on to explain and he says, for when for the time you ought to be teachers, for all this time that you've been in the church, all this time that you have been a believer in Jesus Christ, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. Well, babies today, when you see that they're being fed or not being fed filet mignon. I mean, they've got a bottle and they're drinking their milk. And that milk is helping them to grow, but they're not ready. They don't understand yet. They're not skilled yet in the word of righteousness. And he says, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. Even those who by reason of of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You'll understand righteousness. You understand holiness. You understand godliness. And you understand the contrast to those things. You understand the line, the dividing line between good and evil. Between right and wrong. Between righteousness and wickedness. You understand these things. You discern them. You can hear quickly and, 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 and easily because you have been eating the meat of God's word and you have prayed for understanding. I can tell you this, having read the Bible through many times, after many, many years of knowing, of knowing Jesus as my Lord and Savior, that I still have to study to show myself approved unto God. I could never say, and if the Lord gave, gave me, a, you know, a, another 20 years, which I hope not, I, mean, <laughs> I want the Lord to be here now, but, but if, you know, to get some year, more years, I'll be studying still. Because Paul said, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Study. Paul, before he dies, is asking Timothy to come to him before winter. Because after, after it starts to get cold in, in, in that Mediterranean region, it, it, was, it was impossible to travel by sea. And Timothy would have had to have traveled by sea. He says, come before winter and bring the books. Bring the books. Bring the scrolls. Paul, even to the moment that he was ready to die, if God gave him days, he wanted to study. Bring the books. I know there are some people today that think that they know it all. But all they can be called is (laughs) know-it-alls. And usually know-it-alls don't know it all. I don't know it all. But I know this. I know one thing. He's God, I'm not. And I need to trust him for everything that I do as a believer, as a pastor. Strongly belongeth to them that are of full age, and even even those who by reason of, of, of use have their senses exercised, exercised to discern both good 
and evil. Going back to our text, verse 8 of our text suggests, verse 8 suggests the patience necessary to care and instruct the church. Paul says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls because you were dear unto us. And it is important to point out here, by the way, that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were not babysitters. They they were not called to be babysitters. It took time and it took energy. In other words, it takes sacrifice to care for one another. To care for those who are young in the Lord. To care for those who are still babes in Christ. To care for them and to protect them patiently. To protect them prayerfully. And to protect them purposefully. This is what, God, what Paul is saying. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls. To be as nursing mothers to you. To care for you. To feed you. And then Paul goes on in verse 9 to say this. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail. We're laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. In other words, what Paul was saying to that young church was, (laughs) we didn't come here for you you know, to, to take care of us. Paul was a tent maker. I'm sure Paul, uh, uh, Silas and Timothy helped him in, in that particular work. He says, we labor night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Year witnesses and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Then he says this, verse 11. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children. First he says, we're like a mother to you. And feed you and nurse you. But now as a father, we exhort you. And we comfort you. And we charge you. In other words, we challenge you. Every one of you. As a father does his children that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. Now understand one thing before we go on. None of us are worthy. None of us are worthy. But God qualifies us as worthy because of the work of Jesus Christ. In that respect then, understand that he says to them that you walk worthy of God who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. And I I pray that those of you listening to me tonight will be encouraged to, to consider the issue of walking worthy of God. Examine your hearts to know that every step you take is a step that will honor God, the God who called you into his kingdom. The uh, the only thing, I say this a lot, the only thing you ever bring into your salvation is your sin. That's all you bring. It is the work of Christ. It is the shed blood of Christ. 
It is the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God, on the cross for us. The shed blood of Christ, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's he's the one who has saved us. He, God, has saved us through his son. We walk worthy of what God has done for us. He's called us unto his glory, his kingdom, and his glory. So going back to this section now, Paul speaks as a concerned father, one who worked hard to support his own ministry as a tent maker. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Verse 3, Paul was one who walked as an example of holiness. Verse 10 of, of, of our text here. He walked as an example of holiness. He knew that these young people would be seeing his life and everything that he did. He walked worthy of his calling before God, not just for his sake, but because he was to be an example to these young people. He was one who gave words of encouragement and growth to heed. Personally, He said, every one of you, every one of you, and continually, his fatherly goal of ministry for them was to walk worthy of the Lord. That was their calling. That is their calling. That is our calling. Walk worthy of the Lord. Paul to the Colossians In chapter 1, verse 10 of Colossians says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul lived his life to say, Lord, today I want to give you all all of whatever comes by my walk, by my walking worthy of you. Whatever comes from. Whatever it is, Lord, that you have seen already, because I haven't seen it, but you've seen the end from the beginning. Whatever it is, Lord, I, re- I will rejoice in it. I will walk worthy of, of you, Lord, unto all pleasing. I want to be fruitful in everything that I do for you. I want to increase in the knowledge of you, Lord, every day. That is walking worthy of the Lord. This assurance should govern our lives as believers and cause us always to please the Lord in holiness and obedience, always. And yes, it's a struggle, of course. Why? Because the enemy is every day seeking a way to overturn what God wants us to do or to distract us or to delay us from doing those things or to just outright keep us from doing what brings honor and glory to the Lord. But it is an assurance that governs our lives as believers to walk worthy of our Lord and Savior. By the way, the word exhorted that Paul uses in verse 11 is quite significant in that it means to call alongside, to encourage, to warn, to comfort, and to challenge his children. And so... Must we? To encourage the babes in Christ 
to encourage and to warn the young ones, to comfort them, and to challenge the children of God, those who are still between milk and meat, or on their way to meat, on their way to maturity. That has to always be the goal. I would not want to keep anyone in this body of believers in one particular section. You know, just keep, just, just stay in the milk. Because you're really not ever going to grow that way. We want to continue to give you everything that the Word of God says. But we do so prayerfully. We pray that God, who knows actually where everyone is, what, what level each and every one of us is, and what it is that we need. So we just continue to try to be obedient and, and to be obedient in, 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 in teaching and preaching the Word of God so that we can take hold of what God has given us to encourage one another. Verse 13 says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when you received the Word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God, which effectively worketh also in you that believe. Thanksgiving and rejoicing were given at the appreciation this church had for the word of God. The church in Thessalonica appreciated God's word. I I wish more people would appreciate God's word. I mean, it it is a precious word. But when you think that some people think that the only time, or some people say that the only time that they hear God's word is when they go to church, or let's say uh, right now, you know, listening on online in some in some platform. But you know, is is that the only way that we hear the word of God? Because if it's only one time a day that we may hear it, or one time a week, or twice a week, it's never. That's not an appreciation. To appreciate something is to love it so much. That you, you are just thankful that it is, in, it is in your life for every moment that you live. They appreciated God's word. This verse re- reminded me of the words of Job. Uh, given in Job chapter 23 verse 12. Job said, neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And the question has to be asked, how do we appreciate the word of God? Is it for us more than food? Is it for us more necessary than money? Is the word of God even more necessary than sleep? Follow along with the psalmist in the largest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. And we're not going to read every verse, but we're going to read a few Psalm 119 verse 14 says, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. And, and, and really, literally what, what the psalmist is saying is, I've rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies, which of course is the word of God, 
over and above all riches. Over and above all riches. In Psalm 119, verse 72, the psalmist says, The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Better unto me is the word of God than thousands upon thousands of gold and silver. In verse 127, the psalmist says, Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Even if it was the best of gold, I would love the word of God more. Psalm 119, verse 162, the psalmist says, I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil, one that findeth great, great riches. I find it in the word of God. There are greater riches in the word of God than anything that this world has to offer as far as riches are concerned. Now, I backtrack for just a little bit to 148, verse 148, where the psalmist says, Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. Now, prevent is here used, it's an old English word that meant to either precede or it meant to awaken. Mine eyes are awake in the night watches. But it also means to anticipate. Mine eyes anticipate the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. My eyes are awake so that I might meditate in thy word. Sometimes at night we need to do all we can to stay awake when we're reading God's word, when we're studying, when we're desiring to know that God has a word for us. Certainly if it's at night, it's for the next day. Or maybe it is just confirmation for the day before that God is saying, this is for you. But we need to be aware and awake and anticipate that God always has a message to give us. But not only did the church in Thessalonica appreciate the word of God, They also appropriated the word of God. They appropriated the word of God. Uh, Paul said, you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You received it. It was something that they took for themselves. They welcomed the word, not as from men, but as from God himself. Because he said, you received the word of God, which you heard from us, as it is the truth. You received it as the truth. They appropriated it as the truth. So they, they also not only appropriated it, they said, oh, I want that. That's mine. Yeah, I, I, I think it's great when you can just say, you know what? God has given me his word, and, and now it's mine. Well, if, if, if it's mine, then I want to take it and do what it says and live it out in honor and glory of the one who gave it to us. So we appreciate the word of God, we appropriate the word of God, but they also applied 
the word of God in their lives. They not only took it and said, oh, it's mine. They applied it to their lives. Because Paul goes on to say, which effectively works in you who believe. It effectively works. Why? Because you're applying it to your life. You're saying this statement that Paul is giving to me, or that Peter is saying, or that Jesus said, as I take the word of God, you know, he says something to me, be obedient in this or that, or love one another as I have loved you. Then we begin to do those things in obedience. And what is that happening? It is effectively working in us who believe. The word works in us through faith. Consider the statement that Paul makes to the Hebrews again in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2. When he says, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Unto whom? Unto the ones who were in the wilderness. Who had come out of Egypt. And were wandering now for 40 years. Just go back and read Hebrews chapter 3. But he says in verse 2 of Hebrews 4. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. The word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So you can appreciate the word. You can even appropriate the word. But the only way to apply the word is to apply it by faith and to trust it and to believe it. And Paul goes on to speak now of their conversion in verses 14 through 16 of 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, for you, brethren, and now he calls them brethren. So what has he been? He's a mother to them, to nurse them. He's a father to them, to encourage and exhort them. And now he's a brother to them. He says, for you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. Somebody would probably want to tell, tell Paul, oh, you must be an anti-Semite. No, wait a minute. Paul was the greatest of Semites. He was a Jew. He's not speaking against his people. He's just stating the truth. And he says of his own people who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So the members of the church in Thessalonica became imitators or followers of the churches in Judea in that they became a suffering church for the sake of the gospel. And they willingly suffered because they knew in their hearts through faith That what was brought to them was not the word of men, but the word of the living God. Their own people persecuted them, but Paul goes a step further in pointing out a historic fact. That it was his own people, the Jews, who killed Jesus and the prophets. Of course, and never forget this, in killing Jesus, that was along with the Romans, representing all Gentiles as well. You see the whole picture of of the week that Jesus goes through before he's put on the cross. And you realize it isn't just the Jewish people. The Jews and the Romans. The Jews and the Gentiles. 
all had their part as well. This is why in Isaiah 53, verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him. On whom? On the Messiah. On the suffering servant, which isn't Israel. The suffering servant is the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But understand, not all Jews are to be accused for what a few did. Those who did kill Jesus only repeated the sins of their fathers. And what Paul has pointed out in this passage to the Thessalonians is that others were also suffering with them for the sake of the gospel. And by the way, we need each other in the daily battles of life. We need to support each other in the daily battles of life because we all suffer if we stand for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. At some point, God's patience will end toward those who are filling up their sins and storing up wrath upon themselves for being the enemies of God and Christ and his people. So this is why Paul says, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. They continue to store up this wrath for themselves. So when they have to stand before God one day, they can't blame anyone else. They have to stand there. They've made their choice. And wrath will come upon them to the uttermost. I pray that you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you feel the weight of that kind of burden upon you, you come to Christ today. And he will forgive you of all your sins. And he will love you and encourage you and strengthen you and clothe you in righteousness. Lastly, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 17 through 20, Paul says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your, your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Paul's desire was to go and to see the Thessalonian believers once again. But as, but as he wrote this letter from Corinth, he, he saw the roadblocks. He saw the roadblocks that Satan was putting up, preventing him from going there. And I can assure you, Satan is really good at putting up a lot of roadblocks for every believer. So, did Paul give up? Was Paul giving up when he said, well, Satan has hindered us? Some might think that Paul was giving up, but, but not Paul. <laughs> Paul didn't give up. He saw ways of getting around those roadblocks by sending Timothy there. And according to Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 5, Paul did eventually return there for a time. 
We're told in Acts 20, verses 1 through 5, and after the uproar was ceased, the uproar that was in Ephesus, which you read in chapter 19, I mean, that was a really major uproar. After the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece and there abode three months and when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia and there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of uh, Derby and Timotheus or Timothy and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus, these going before tarried for us at Troas. So from those places, and of course Thessalonians, is, uh, the Thessalonians are mentioned here, uh, Paul would have that opportunity again uh, to see them, but much later. As for Satan's hindrance, the word hindered in verse 18 has the sense of breaking up the road and putting up obstacles or roadblocks. Doesn't he do that all the time anyway? So how do we deal with that? In regard to these roadblocks of Satan, listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the 19th century, the late 19th century. Spurgeon said this, he said, supposing that we have ascertained that hindrances in our way really come from Satan, what then? I have but one piece of advice, and that is, go on. Hindrance or no hindrance, in the path of duty, as God the Holy, Spirit, Holy Ghost enables you. Go on, he said, hindrance or no hindrance, in the path of duty, as God the Holy Ghost enables you. God will enable us to get through every obstacle, to get through every roadblock, to get through every struggle, to get through every trial, to get through every break up in the road. Where there's no path, God will make the way. God will always open the door. God will always give us what we need and get us to where he wants us to go. Satan hindered them in a way, but Paul overcame those things under the inspiration and leading of the Holy Spirit. So always remember, don't let anything hinder you. The Lord may take you around something. He may take you under something. He may take you through something but he'll always get you where he wants you to go. But what you need to know is where does God want you to be? And that comes through prayer. That comes through trusting. That comes through waiting upon the Lord. That comes through knowing his word. And when you read the book of Acts and you see what the the apostles did in going through the whole world of, of that time, taking the gospel just as Jesus said, in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. That is the beginning of that. And it should still be going on today until Jesus comes. So in verses 19 and 20, Paul once again reminds the church of Christ's return. Now remember the last verse of the first chapter. 
verse 10. Verse Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul closes that chapter by saying, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Well, it is in that verse that he says, And to wait for his Son from heaven. Here in the last verse of this chapter, he says, actually the last two verses, he says, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, at his coming. Paul will continue to do that at the end of each chapter, focus our attention on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That becomes a part of the great theme of 1 Thessalonians, as we'll see as we keep going. But we'll see this reminder at the end of every chapter of the first letter of, of, uh, to the Thessalonians. And, and they were his victor's crown. The church was Paul's victor's crown because of their compassion, because of their love, because of their uh, uh, ap- appreciation for God's word, their appropriation of the word, and their application of the word. A long distance may have separated Paul from the Thessalonian believers, but he wanted them to know that he would never forget them. They were his glory. They were his joy. Paul knew that even if he could not see them again in this life, they will rejoice together in heaven after the Lord comes back for his bride, the church. So this is a powerful chapter on serving faithfully, fully giving your life so others may grow. I have seen it happen far too often with people who want to serve. They're willing to do so until it costs them something. May that not be the case. As Paul, Silas, and Timothy have shown us what true servants are like. That they are willing to give their all for others. Are we willing to give our lives and our all for others? To encourage the church and to expound the gospel to the unbeliever, to bring them to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we willing to give all to see God's work done in the church and outside of the church, within and without?